This episode of the American Farriers Journal podcast is brought to you by Farnham. Your relationship with your horse is a reflection of who you are. From your daily grooming ritual to preparing for the big show, Farnham is your partner from head to hoof, inside and out. We've been making premium products to enhance your connection and improve the life of your horse for 70 years. And you can count on us for at least another 70 more. Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. I've always said that I don't do the heavy lifting on these podcasts. The farriers that I interview do that. They carry the weight by sharing their experiences and opinions. And sometimes it's best to just hit the record button and get out of their way. This episode features one of those interviews. Sonny Broadus built his reputation on the track and has a way to make time pass with his stories. In this episode, he talks about shoeing racehorses, his biggest influence in horseshoeing, letting the horse tell you what to do, and some of his favorite horses that he's worked on. This was recorded at the Forge of July gathering in Shelbyville, Kentucky, so the background sounds include forging and other clinic activities. The interview begins with Sonny talking about how he got into horses and horseshoeing. I was born, you know, in the country. I loved horses all my life. Didn't have the opportunity to own horses other than work horses, but, you know, I just, I kind of always loved them. I always kind of respected them and, and thought they were, you know, they were really, for the lack of an education, just beautiful animals. The way I got started, I was a paper boy. I sold grit papers on Saturday, and uh, I was probably 14. And uh, I used to stop and roll my papers at, at a place that had some thoroughbreds. And uh, the old man that owned them, he spotted me down there rolling my papers through the fence. And he come down and asked me what I was doing. I said, well, I'm just rolling papers here. and. Uh, well, he said, well, come on in. You like horses? I said, yes, sir. He said, come on in. So it, it began a friendship that lasted till he died. And my oldest son's named after him. That's how much he meant to me. But that, uh, that's the way I kind of got interested in runners. Uh, I briefly shot show horses. I say briefly, I shot nine years. And I, I loved making shoes. I loved the iron work. Uh, that, that was my love. My love was the, the iron work. And um, during that time, I went to work for a guy named Rip Kennedy. He was, he was a true artist. Uh, he just went very meticulous about his work. And from there, he sent me to another guy, and um, I went to the harness track and worked with a guy named Tim McCarthy. And uh, he kind of he kind of changed my ideas about iron work, but he, again, he taught me the love of being able to make what you can see and being able to make what, exactly what the horse needs. So I got interested in it, mainly because I could see, I could see it work. And, and he didn't have to tell me how good he was because I could see the results. So I followed him. After that, I, could, I, I went up north. I was from the deep south. I, wasn't, I was away from home. I uh, stayed 13 months on the, on the harness track, approximately 13 months. I came back home and I uh, went back to show and show horses and built up a big clientele. 
and now we're talking about probably five years, six years into the business, built a wonderful clientele, had it for nine years, and about that time the oil prices went out of sight and the motel room started doubling, and I said, I gotta get more horses in one spot so I can make a living, and the track was 65 miles from my house in New Orleans. So I went there, I never had to practice for any test, I still have never practiced for a test in my life. I walked in there and took the union test and I passed it. And I, that day I ran into a guy named Jack Reynolds. He was on my test board. And Jack Reynolds was the greatest running horseshoer I ever knew in my life. He was so far ahead of the rest of us and I, I, I hope I don't make anybody mad, but, but he was by far the greatest I ever knew. And he kind of took me under his wing and, and I started to emulate him. And the funny thing about Jack is you see so many people out there that worked for Jack. Well, Jack only had two guys working for him. That was his sons. I never worked for Jack. I worshipped him as far as a, a craftsman because I saw what he could do, not what he could talk about doing. And I immediately started to, I guess the word, I don't know, I'm not very well educated, but I started to emulate Jack as best I could. And then I started to develop my personality trying to be like Jack, and all I got was ulcers. And so I wind up, um, he told me one day, he said, uh, he, he, when I took my test, I, I, was so, I was so nervous because he was there and I'd heard of him for 15 years. He was one of those guys that was a true legend in the business. And he walked outside and he told me, he said, son, he said, I love your work. He said, in three years, you'll have all the work you can do. And in five years, you'll be on top. Well, I didn't believe that at all. I thought he was just trying to make me feel good, but it worked pretty much the way, way he said. That led to a friendship that lasted till, till Jack passed away. And the, the wonderful thing about Reynolds, and I can't say enough about other people because it's not about Sonny Broadus. Sonny Broadus is a person, Jack Reynolds is a legend. But what I did was I, I tried to emulate him so much and it inspired me to do better work. One of the greatest things about Reynolds that I ever knew, I mean, I've ever seen, is he worked on quarter cracks all the time because people would fly him in to do quarter cracks. He never put a patch on in his life, never used any Equilox. I've seen him cut out quarters on Wednesday and, and win a stake on Saturday. I've seen him, uh, but, but the main reason is because he could work iron. He could do anything with iron. Jack, till the day night, never used an aluminum bar chute, never used a pre-made bar chute, and never used plastic. And I saw him fix quarter cracks right and left all the time. So that method, he taught me that method. That method, along with the ability to be able to patch a horse, today has worked real good for my family. And the reason that most of us patch them, my family in particular, is just to keep the trainer from mashing on it with his finger because, you know, people, they have a tendency to think if it's covered up, they can't, it's not there. And, um, but mainly, the, he, he just taught me how to, how to rely on Mother Nature, get, get as close back to nature as possible. And it's worked real good for me in my life. I've gotten credit for a lot of things I didn't do. Uh, I'm amazed. We got, I got a chance to work side by side with him every winter for several winters, most all the time. And, and I never had a conversation with Reynolds that he didn't teach me something. And a lot of times it wasn't about shoeing, it was about life. But, uh, I need to back off there a little because I'm starting to get a little emotional, but uh, but <clears throat> when I see people today say that they, you know, mention his name, 
let me explain something to you, the way I feel about, about what made me get to where, if I'm, in, if I'm in any position, I just want to kind of tell you why I'm there. It's because I emulated some of the greatest horseshoers that ever lived. I didn't invent anything. I never tried to reinvent the wheel. I tried to be the best craftsman that I could be. Um, and, and, and I suggest that any young horseshoer out there, if you, if you tie on to somebody or you reach someone that can talk to you and communicate with you and make you understand, the only thing I can tell you is if that guy relates to you, you latch on to him. So if, if, I can, if I can offer any help to all of you out there, anybody listening, it's find somebody that relates to you and, and stick as close to him as possible. And don't get yourself confused with a lot of theories. Um, I was fortunate enough to go through several breeds, but I also picked mentors during that time that had a lot of the same beliefs, and I think it's worked for me, uh, and it worked for them. I saw it work for them, and one of the things that Jack told me years ago, he said, if you'll stick as close to Mother Nature as possible, said she'll do all the work and you'll get all the credit, said people will brag on you. And he said, and that's what I pretty much always believed in. I'm always amazed today of the things that's happened to me in my life. I'm just as amazed as other people. Anybody, I don't care who they are, when they tell you something, make them explain to you why. Because the question you ask them, if the, if the why is by far the most important, because that teaches you something. If you ask a guy, how do I stop this horse from hitting, or how do I stop this horse, or how do I work on this finer horse, or something, and he tells you how to work on that individual horse, you haven't learned anything. If you learn how he's thinking, then the next horse you'll be able to figure it out. And sometimes you'll have to go a different direction. And so I'm always, I'll turn 70 my next birthday. But I can tell you this, I still got a lot more questions than I got answers. It seems like a lot of people have all the answers. So that makes me feel really silly <laughs> because I've worked my lifetime and, uh, and I love the business. I don't just like it. I've had so many wonderful memories in my life. I've had the opportunity to shoe so many really, really good horses, but I'm the most proud of all those horses, the ones that I started with and finished my career with, because I'm the most proud because of the longevity I had with those horses. And some of them was worth 1500 some of them was worth millions. I take pride in the fact that I started and finished with them. And, and, and I tried not to get in their way. I never tried to create a miracle because God creates miracles. Sonny brought us his horses. That's, how, that's what I do. I just try my best not to screw up anything every day is what I do. That's basically my theories. Um, stick close to nature, look at the angles, look at what your horse is facing, and be aware that all horses have problems, all of them. And if you can learn to read that horse and stay ahead of those problems, they never occur. I can tell you incidents after incidents where horses were taken and totally destroyed as soon as somebody started trying to fix stuff. I don't really, I don't fix what's not broken. If there's any anything else that I can think of, I would say uh, it's been a wonderful, wonderful trade. I hope all of you out there feel the same way I do, but I realize that a lot of people are in the business for different reasons. If you, if you get a chance, be thankful for being able 
able to participate in this business. You talk about responding more to nature. How are some ways farriers, you see them getting themselves into trouble by not listening to that? That's probably my favorite topic. You, you hit on something that really, it really moves me because I come up believing in that theory and that theory has never failed me, it's never let me down. I don't want this to sound like uh, how great, but I want it to sound like, I want you to realize that I've worked on a lot of problem horses in my life, a lot of problems. And as you get older, you have a tendency to attract those horses. But what I see mostly is today, and I'm fixing to step on somebody's toes, and I hate it because I, but I really believe in this, and I'm gonna say it since I have the opportunity. A lot of people try to build horses. You'll see pictures of beautiful shoeing jobs. You only see the pictures of the beautiful shoeing jobs after the shoeing job's over. You don't see the shoeing job six, eight weeks from now, or 10 weeks from now when he neglected to get him shot. So everybody has to rebuild horses. I'm under the impression, and I'm under the belief, the deep belief, that the good Lord made the horse. We can't do anything but try to take care of it. Nature is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing to have on your side. She's one heck of an adversary. If you start to try to rebuild what nature built, you're going to wind up tearing him up somewhere else, some, another place. And, and what it has, it, I call it a pinball machine. Uh, it just bounces from one to the other. You know, you, you start to develop problems. And first thing you know, you can't even remember what the original problem was. I'm a strong believer in staying as close to nature as you can. I'm a, I'm a strong believer that a, if a horse is turned in, he needs to stay turned in. If he's turned out, he needs to stay turned out because that's the way everything's lined up by the time we get him anyway. So when you say when you take a horse and try to rebuild a foot or re-sculpture a foot or the term that they use today is gathering, which I, when, when I was a kid and growing up and around people like Reynolds, you call that choking because that's what it would do. It would choke a horse foot down. A horse quit running and he quit running for no reason because you sheared all the wall off of him. I find today that there's less respect for that horse's natural foot than there ever has been. People pay no, no attention whatsoever to the periopal coating, which is usually the outside one third of the foot hoop wall. When you destroy that periopal coating, you have opened yourself up to a big can of worms. Your problems are going to start to manifest. They're going to keep going. And pretty soon you're going to have a horse on the shelf. You can take a horse, you can straighten him, you can do this. I got in an argument not long ago. I'm fixing to step on somebody's toes hard, okay? I don't care because I believe in this. When they start, when you start pinning horses when they're born to straighten the legs, that should definitely be on that horse's papers the rest of his life because I see horses all the time broke down for no reason, that pop chips for no reason other than that horse's leg does not line up naturally like he was supposed to. And also, when you're talking about that, you're asking people to give millions of dollars for horses in a sale that's made perfect. And he takes him home and he's gonna race him. And he doesn't hold up and race him. Now they're gonna breed him because he's bred good and he's nice and straight. Now he's in the gene pool. And that is the worst thing that could happen to racing. And it's done by everybody today. It's a normal rule, it, you do it. 
and we see these horses that come in two-year-olds never even been worked and they got chipped ankles chipped knees and nothing lines up you can tell it's all artificial now if there's anybody out there that'll speak to me, <laughs> I'll be glad to talk about it. <laughs> so, so what changed about that level of horsemanship, or or what changed in the, particularly with the well, racing industry? When I what I find today, it's it's interesting you say that because you know you're talking to a guy who turned 70 in a month, and I've been in this business, I've been at the racetrack since 1976. And um, what I've seen change is when, when a guy, when a trainer used to hire a horseshoer, he himself would walk to, if he saw you working, he'd walk over and look at you and maybe never say nothing and walk away. And the next day you may be shooting a horse, the same guy would appear. You didn't walk in everybody's barn and know everybody's name because that's what you didn't do. But he would, he would make his own mind up. If he liked your work, then he would hire you. If he didn't like your work, he may not. You may not even ever know he was a trainer, because he hired the horseshoer because he knew what he liked. You find people in the business today that don't have a clue what they like. You find big-time trainers everywhere that have lots and lots of problems because of shoeing and don't even realize it. They don't even realize it. They just come and go. They're like Dixie cups. And, and, and that's an unfortunate situation because nobody wants to admit they don't know, so they don't ask. Uh, that's the main problem I see today. A trainer these days will say, I'll ask his buddy at the bar or at the grocery store, said, who's the best horseshoe on the backside? Well, that guy, you know, that guy so-and-so, that guy so-and-so, he has no knowledge of what he's asking. You know, used to, a guy would walk in, he would make up his own mind. But today, nobody has time to make up their own mind. And it's amazing to me, the lack of interest in horseshoeing. Now you have a lot of promotion and a lot of salesmanship, but the lack of interest in exactly what you're looking at. And, and all you have to do, if you're a trainer, is sit down and think about it. Do I have problems? Do I have problems other people don't have problems? Why is it that I have quarter cracks and the guy next door to me never has quarter cracks? Why is it that my horses leave on a percentage that's unbelievable and the guy next door trains very similar to me and he doesn't? So question your horseshoe. Don't question what he's driving. Don't look at his truck. Don't look at his rig. Don't look at his mouth. Look at what he does, what he puts on the ground. Look what he's proven year after year. And the minute that trainers learn more about shoeing, the actual practice of shoeing, the better our trade will be because it will have to improve. Today, and unfortunately, in my, in my business, all you have to be able to do to go to work is be able to drive shoes on without sticking them. That's about it. Now, to be good, you've got to improve and you've got to be better. But you've got to make yourself better. You've got to make yourself better. You've got to ask yourself, is what I'm doing right or wrong? Is, am I causing this? The first person I look at every morning, the minute I have a problem with any horse, is the guy that's shaving, looking back at me. Because I want to make sure that if I make a mistake, it was a mistake and not something I just totally overlooked because I was in too big a hurry. What I find today is people love speed. 
They love speeding horses. They love speeding horseshoes. They love speeding assistants. They love speeding everybody. But if you take your time, the, there was a time when this trade was the most wonderful trade in the world because it was passed down generation after generation from horseshoe to grandfathers to nephews and the lineage is unbelievable in your, in your good horseshoers and I still see good horseshoers today and I'll question them because I go in a lot of different places and I'll ask him, I'll say, where did you learn to shoe horses? Invariably the same names come up somewhere sometimes three, four generations back but that name pops up and I say, there it is. There it is. I was so amazed when I was, I had an opportunity to work for Charlotte Weber for a year. Wonderful opportunity. Got to work on some wonderful, wonderful horses. And I, I got to visit with a lot of blacksmiths. Got to see a lot of blacksmiths. And I would spot these guys that were really good at places I didn't even know their name. But I would check their lineage and it went back generation after generation after generation. And that's the reason that guy was good. And, and today, we go to a shoeing school, we come out, we, we run, take a test, we, we, or we go get a license, we get in the backside, because running horses are easy to shoe. They're clean, they're taken care of, you got small nails, light shoes, you know, basically, but you don't have enough bottoms. You should never, never, never work on the backside of a racetrack, or for that matter, in the public eye, until you've got at least five years of at least staying close to another horseshoer because anybody can shoe a horse that has no problem. The problem is, is when you shoe that horse with no problem, the next time you shoe him, now he's got a problem. And now you don't know what to do for it. The main thing I see is not enough apprenticeship not enough time to learn the business. And believe me, you got it, it. All the time you spend in this business will pay you back tenfold, a hundredfold. It's crazy how good this business can be to you if you put your heart into it. I think, I think there's a lot of young people who listen to that. You're talking about gaining that experience. How do you know when you're ready? How do you know you've had enough to go out there and be in the public eye? I was, when I went on my own, I was, I was so scared I didn't know what to do because um, I'd been working for, for several years, I don't even know how long, probably a lot slower than a lot of people, but uh, when I went on my own, I was almost forced on my own by my journeyman and it scared me to death because I was used to that crutch. I'm not going to call any names, I can tell you a little story, uh, it'll help, maybe it'll help some of you. I took a kid in years ago, and uh, he was with me five years, and he was so dedicated. He was an amazingly dedicated kid. Had no talent. When I tell you he had no talent, he had no talent. I'd work with him and work with him and work with him the first year, and I kind of I kind of stay on my apprentices. And we'd work it in the shop, and I'd come in the kitchen at night, and my wife would tell me, say, you know, what's wrong with you? I'd say, I wish the kid would quit because he'll never make it. Well, about the second year, this kid began to turn around. He was so dedicated. He'd do anything you told him to. And I come in the house one night, and I was kind of whistling. My wife said, what's wrong? I said, well, I said, you know, that kid, I didn't think he was going to make it, but I said, he might make it if he stays away from anybody that's tough, you know, and stays on a cheaper track. I said, he, he probably can make it. 
he stuck with me another year. I come back in, I thought about it about a year later, and I said, you know, this kid's gonna surprise me if he's not careful. I said, this kid's getting better and better. Of course, my wife, she's the first person to tell me, I told you so, you have no patience. And I don't have any patience. But this kid had so much, so much desire to be good until he overcome that. He overcome a lot of obstacles. And he was amazingly dedicated. So my point by telling you this story is you, only you, you're the only person that knows how good you want to be. Um, if you want to win contests, you know, find somebody that, that wins contests and just stay as close to them as possible. If you want to be a good horseshoer, find somebody that's a good horseshoer. Find somebody you respect. If you want to be in a certain discipline, go to that discipline as soon as possible. But, but dedicate yourself a little more. Um, what I find today is um, when I came up in the business, we'd work all day at the racetrack and at night we'd go to the shop and we'd stay in the shop sometimes till three, four o'clock in the morning, making tools, making shoes, doing stuff. Everybody was working. Everybody was helping one another. Today, at three o'clock, everybody's playing golf. Are, are, they, are they figuring out where they're gonna go eat tonight? Are they going fishing? You know, you gotta figure out what you want, a lot, want out of life. If you wanna be a good fisherman, go fishing. If you wanna be a good golfer, go, go golf. But if you wanna be a good horseshoer, the only way you do it is by dedicating yourself. Or for that matter, anything else. It doesn't make any difference what you're doing. You gotta dedicate yourself to it. And you gotta do it for your own reason. Because you're never gonna, I, I never tried to get any notoriety for anything. I love standing in the background because I always love my horses. I never jumped up in front of a horse in wind circle. Matter of fact, I've only been in one wind circle in my life. That was because a very close friend of mine won his first race when he was 16. And I went and got in a wind circle. But you know, I love I love the business, and I've seen that love dwindle away to a love of money. And you can't answer to two gods. <clears throat> if you love money and you love horseshoeing, it's okay. To, to expect a good living. You should expect a good living. You should expect for a living. You should expect to be paid well for what you do good. But you shouldn't expect to be paid well for what you can't do good, okay? Learn to be good. The money has always taken care of it of itself. You just try to be as good as you can be. It's not a, a and we're, we're talking about a love of the business. I've, I see some wonderfully talented horseshoes today. I look around and I see these kids that working and they're, they got so much talent. And, and I never had that talent. I worked really hard. <clears throat> the only thing I had was an eye. I could see things well. But the talent, you know, I can't walk and chew bubble gum at the same time, you know. You know, I'm not the fanciest guy with my tools. And that has nothing to do with shoeing horses. Speed has absolutely nothing to do with turning out a good job. Efficiency has everything to do with turning out a good job. There's nothing wrong with being very efficient under a horse. That's the greatest thing in the world. And don't tell me you work for a guy. I see it all the time. I work for this guy, I work for that guy. Well, I've had guys work for me and I didn't even know their name. They apprenticed under me. Sometimes three years I didn't even know their name. I don't even know where they're from. But they, I see it on Facebook and they work for me. You know, those kind of things, the best best compliment you can give any mentor of yours is try to copy him. Try to copy his work. Don't, don't pass his name around so you can get work. A lot of people do that. 
That's easy to do. But it's only going to get you in trouble. It's only going to get you in trouble because it's going to get you over your head so fast. It's unbelievable. And remember, every single day you learn something. I don't care how old you are. The only thing I know for sure is I got a lot more questions than I got answers. You talked about one of the things that, that's helped you is having that eye. Can you talk about that? And can you, can you develop a good eye? I, I think you could. I was kind of gifted with a good eye, but that don't mean you can't learn it. Uh, I was a portrait painter when I was in high school. I was uh, I was going to Ringling School of Art when I saw somebody shoe a horse and I never picked. Uh, matter of fact, the painting is still on an easel that I was working on in my mother's attic. And I, I guess she thinks one day I'll go back to being a painter. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I, had, I was gifted with a really good eye. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with, with balance, like uh, like if you're the kind of guy I'm talking about, the eye that, I'm, that I, I had is if you're the type of guy that walks in a room and immediately straightens all the picture frames on the wall, or, or you notice the curtain rods lower in one corner than it is the other, that's the kind of eye I'm talking about. Because I'm always, I'm always, always looking for something that doesn't add up to the picture, always. I look at a horse that walks in my shop or walks in my shed row, and I want to see, I, the first thing I see is something that doesn't match this horse. It doesn't, you know, that doesn't mean I have the answer to what's wrong with him, but I have a question. So I go to that foot and I check and see if I see anything else. If it adds up, I go, I, I check another checkpoint. I got a million checkpoints. I teach my kids, look, go to checkpoint, go to checkpoint, go to checkpoint. Because only when all those things add up do you get an equal or a, or a good opportunity to help this horse. You can't go to a horse with a preconceived idea of what you're going to do with him. You know, pattern shoeing is a, is a very harmful way to do a running horse, or for that matter, any other horse. But I've always been appalled at pattern shoeing because every horse is different, so why do you shoot a pattern? What pattern are you using? My sons both do iron work. They, they understand how, how good it is, but we do racetrack iron work. We, that's what we do. I, I'm so fortunate to have my sons in the business, and, and I love to watch them work every day. We do things like Reynolds did it because Reynolds did it. We don't do things because somebody said to it. And, and today I see so many people out there that look for shortcuts on every single thing. And, and I think that's the nature of the times. That's the nature of the beast. You know, you, you always, everybody's looking for a shortcut. I, I see people making shoes. I walked up to a kid yesterday. I mean, this, this kid made quite an impression on me. I don't even know his name. I walked up to him and I saw him struggling, making a shoe. And I said, son, can I help you a little bit? I worked with him. He immediately, his eyes opened. And this kid has been out there this morning and he's doing 10 times better than what he was doing yesterday. And I said, I don't, and, and you know, there's, there's little hints that you learn in this trade and time teaches it to you. And if you have the opportunity to learn from someone that has spent those time, those years, uh, working at it and, and, and putting it in his heart, then emulate that guy, you know, try to be like him. And don't just try to talk like him, don't try to have the right words. 
try to go through his struggles, try to learn what he did, try to try to fail, because he failed. He didn't just pick up a piece of steel one day and become a finished horseshoe. You know, learn what that, because those failures you, you do every single day uh, builds you and it, and it makes you stronger and it makes you, and, and it teaches you what you don't want to do next time. It's all right to fail. Man, I fail a lot more times probably by trying to do stuff. But I'll tell you this, I never got any better by not trying. You also talked about efficiency. There's a difference between efficiency and being fast. Can you, can you talk about that and ways that you learned maybe those hard lessons over the years of how to improve efficiency? Absolutely. When I come to the racetrack, I shoot and show horses. So, you know, I worked out of my truck. I worked from the anvil. Uh, I made all my shoes. I made my shoes for five years, and I did. I didn't lie about it. I made them for five years, and I was pretty efficient. I could make a full set of shoes in 15 minutes and put them on a horse, uh, you know, ready to put on a horse. And, and they never would have won any contest, but they did the job I wanted done. And I was good, and I was quick at it. I was, I was efficient at it. But that's what I mean by efficiency. Uh, you, can't, um, you can't spend with today, with, particularly with the prices, you, you've got to be efficient. If you take a long time to do something, you're gonna either take a shortcut or you're gonna go broke. Because, you know, if you don't learn. But you gotta put your time in to learn. You gotta work with that stuff to get efficient. Efficiency to me is, is efficiency and smoothness go along. I mean, they're, they're, they're a perfect partner. I love to walk up to a guy that looks like he's flowing. If I had it all to do over again, I'd probably send both my kids to ballet school before they ever started because it teaches you to be smooth. It teaches you how to handle your body. And horses watch and, and key off of those things. If you're mad when you, like for instance, Look, watch what watch a horse coming out of the stall. I never, I try not to miss any more things than I have to. If a groom walks up to me and, and he tells me, he said, I hate this horse, I immediately tell the trainer and say, look, give me somebody else to hold this horse. Because that horse knows that that groom hates him. So he hates that groom. Or either he's afraid of that groom. That, that's efficiency. Because you're gonna fight this horse the whole time you're working on him if you don't figure out what makes him tick. Watch him. Let him get relaxed. Figure out where he wants to be. It's like I tell people all the time. They'll say, well, do you want to be here? Do you want to be here? I said, I want to be where he wants to be. I said, if he wants to work in the telephone booth, I'll try to work in the telephone booth. Because I want, I want that horse to be comfortable. Because I've found out over the years, if the horse is comfortable, you're going to be a lot more comfortable. And at the end of the day, you're going to be a lot more tired if you fight him. And guess what? You're not going to win either. You're not gonna win those battles. But if you'll spend time to at least take a little time, look at your horse, see where he's comfortable, reach and get him like you're not not like you're fixing to wrestle him down. Reach and get him like he's a he's a beautiful lady. Touch him, don't grab him. You know, let him know you're there. A lot of horses react because they don't know you're there. You reach down, you touch them, it scares them to death. They react, then you get mad. Now your temper's up and the horse is reacting. Set your shoeing box in the right spot. Don't set your shoeing box down like I did when I went to the racetrack half a block away and, and get under the horse and then the horse moves and, and, and you gotta stop and get back out from under the horse, go get your shoeing box. Set your tools down in the right spot. Organize yourself to where you can reach in and get your tools. Always keep your tools 
when they move in and out of a box. And I find this hard today because people have such tall shoeing boxes. But plating boxes, when you're working on a horse that's nervous, is, this is a hint that will work for almost everybody. Keep your tools as low as possible. Always bring your tools out below your knee. Don't raise them above your knee. Because the minute you get your tools above your knee, your horse spots them. Now he's going to react, especially if he's been whacked by a groom two or three times or whacked by an exercise boy or whatever. He's going to react to those things. So keep your, keep your tools low, below your knees. Bring them straight to you. When you place them back in your box, reach for your next, next tool. Don't do like I used to do. Put your tool back in your box and say, what am I going to do next? And then you got to go back through your box. Your hand's in your box. When you reach and get that tool, that doesn't, that doesn't speed you up. That makes you smooth. And when you're working your jack, turn your jack in the right direction when you get under your horse. Put your hammer on top of your jack where you get, where when you move your jack, if, you, if your horse moves a little, you can move your jack very easily and your hammer's already there. If you're shaping a shoe, don't lay your hammer back on the jack to fit the shoe. Keep your hammer in your hand and fit your shoe because you already got, why you want to pick it, pick your hammer up and put it on top of the jack and then reach back and get it. That's what I used to do. Learn how to, to be smooth. And the smoother you get, if you'll watch your horses, be observant. The smoother you get, the better your horses are going to react to you because you're, a lot of horses are very afraid of sudden movements and it'll cause you a lot of sore backs in your life and sore legs and sore toes. There's that difference between being fast, trying to rush through to get done, say within an hour, and taking your time and not making those mistakes so that you're done in the same amount of time. But taking There's a lot of difference. Yeah. There's a lot of difference. The first thing I see wrong with a lot of horses in my, horseshoers in my trade, like I've seen horseshoers that walk to a horse talking and never look at the horse, pick up a foot, and go to work. They hadn't watched him come out of the stall and watched him set himself up. They, and that's a, that's a whole in-depth thing. Uh, I use that more than anything else to tell me what's bothering a horse. A horse will tell you almost everything to do with him. Now, without getting off out, out in the left field, he'll tell you almost everything. If you're smart enough and take the time enough to learn what he's trying to to tell you. Speed, like I said, it means nothing to me. I don't know if I finish in 45 minutes, an hour, or if I finish in 30 minutes. It doesn't mean anything to me because I, at that time, the only time I've ever tried to speed up is if I'm under a really dangerous horse. And, and then everything goes out the window. But if I've got a horse standing and I've looked at him, I don't keep up with how fast I am. And I find that in our business, if we're not careful, we'll line them up too close together because you're, you line your horses up on perfect horses that's going to stand perfect. It never works that way. So by the time you've made your second or third appointment, you're already behind the horse. Give yourself enough time to enjoy your work and work. And instead of going and playing golf this evening, finish your horses. Or instead of going fishing, go fishing after you finish your horses. You know, don't be thinking about going fishing or don't be thinking about golf or don't be thinking about what's on TV while you're under a horse. My son called me the other day, he swears he called me and asked me a question and I answered him. But he called me when I was under a horse. 
I had no idea what he said to me. And, and so he, he wanted me to have, be checked for Alzheimer's disease. <laughs> but uh, but so, so learn to concentrate and, and it'll be your best ally. Making a living and breaking in first and then making a living on the track. You've already talked about taking that time and making sure you're ready to be there. How, how do you survive on the track as a farrier? The, the best way I can answer that with me, and you probably ought to talk to my sons better than that because both of them are much better businessmen than I am. But, you know, the one thing I can say is put your time in before you go. You know, don't, don't come out of shoeing school and, and go to the track because, you know, it looks glamorous. Learn how to shoe horses. If you're gonna, if you plan to go in a short-footed uh, business, by that I mean quarter horses, whatever. If you plan to go into that short-footed business, stay with short feet and work toward that. I, you know, you you stay with your quarter horses, your paint horses, your trail horses, stuff like that. If you plan to go to the track in the future, but always be aware of your ultimate goal is to get to the track. But don't leave a shoeing school. Don't come out of a shoeing school immediately go to the racetrack because you're a lost ball in high weeds. I see it all the time. That doesn't mean that you're not going to be successful. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be a moneymaker because salesmanship will come into play there. But if you want to be the best you can be, take your time, learn how to learn your trade, work for someone that explains stuff to you. And I don't mean he stops in the middle of a horse, but on the way home that night, he might tell you. Discuss things with him. Figure out why he does things. Because if you know why he does it, then from then on, it may not work for you. But you know, you may know why it don't work for you. You understand, you learn something by knowing why. And if you'll ask why, my wife annoys me by asking why a lot of times, but she usually learns something. And pretty much I've learned something over the years, but don't tell her that. But anyway, <laughs> you know, that's that's the best advice I can give. Don't go to the track too early if you want to be a very good horseshoer. If you want to make money, find somebody that knows how to make money and go to work for them. You know, that wasn't in my, I, all I want to do is make a living shoe horses. I had no idea I'd ever do anything else, you know. But uh, it, it, horses took me everywhere I went. I never, to this day, I've never walked in an outfit and asked for asked for an outfit. I've never asked a guy to shoe his horse to this day. I've never put on an aluminum bar to this day. I won't do it. I've never put on a fabricate, fabricated bar because it goes against my teachings. Fabricators are wonderful people. They get $25 an hour. I don't charge $25 an hour, so I'm not going to fabricate something and put on a horse. My, my first journeyman told me, he said, there's two ways to do things. You can do it like a farmer, or you can do it like a horseshoe. If you're a farmer, charge like a farmer. I don't charge like a farmer. That's the rule that I can go by there. But learn your trade. Too many people skip. They skip. They go one, two, three, four steps when they should put their foot on the first step and move to the next step because it's just like those steps iced over. If you go up too fast, the trip down is a hell of a lot rougher. 
you, you talked about farrier is a, a generational thing. It used to be more, but you still see it a lot, and you certainly see it with your family, and I, I'm sure yeah. there's a, yeah. a lot of pride you have with, with your sons. Uh, talk about the practice you, you had, and then how you work with them, and, and overall what you guys do together. Together, um, first of all, people ask me a lot of times, said, why is it that your kids wind up in the trade and they seem to love it so much? And I said, you know, I don't really know because I never encouraged them to get in the trade, never. My shop was always behind my house. I was usually in there almost every night. They hung around like kids. The youngest one didn't, the youngest one didn't. The oldest one always stayed in my shop. Youngest one was a little bit intimidated by it because he thought he would see his brother progress and he would think, well, I can't ever catch up with him, you know, so he didn't, he wasn't his. But I, I didn't encourage either son to become horseshoers. I didn't discourage him. But I told my wife one time, I said, I don't want my sons to be horseshoers because I'm a horseshoer. I don't want my sons to be horseshoers because they think that's an easy way to make a lot of living. I can just step into my dad's footsteps. I said, I want them to be horseshoers. If they want to be horseshoers, I want them to prove to me that they want to be horseshoers. Started my kids the way everybody used to start their apprentices. I, they, they were in the shop. They worked, they worked in the shop. Because all the great horseshoers I ever knew worked in the shop. And it was much that way when I first come to the racetrack. Uh, to give you an idea, in the New Orleans Fairgrounds, there was 17 fires. There was never a day that I walked into the shop at the fairgrounds when there was not three or more of those fires lit. Today, there's one fire in the shop. Belongs to my sons. We still got 17 places, but everybody's playing golf and using it to store their TV sets and stuff. Nobody walks in there anymore. My sons were apprentices, and they were made fun of by other apprentices because they said all that stuff is outdated. And I told them, I said, are you going to listen to me or are you going to listen to them? I said, I, I hammered it into them. It's paid off. I know it's paid off. I see them work. It's paid off wonderfully. But they spent a lot of years thinking those, those other apprentices might be right. What I see today is that family unity is not there anymore. A lot of guys in this business shoe horses because their father shot horses. That's the wrong reason to do anything. If you shoe horses because you love what your father does, that's a wonderful thing. It, when I see them put the time and effort they put in, it's that's enough tribute to me. I'm so proud, I don't know what to do because of what they decided to do in life and how they decided to approach that, that That's the only key to being good or bad. Find something you love. I don't care what it is. If you don't want to be a horseshoer, don't be a horseshoer, man. We got enough bad horseshoers. We don't need any more. So <clears throat> make up your mind what you want to do. When people walk up to me and say, how much money you make, I never answer it. You know why I don't answer it? Because I don't have a clue. Because it don't mean nothing to me. Money means absolutely nothing to me and never will. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of times I've thrown away a lot because of it. But it's, you can't, when I go back to what I said a while ago, you're either gonna be in it for the money or you're gonna be in it for the love of the trade. Everybody's got their own reason for being in the trade and that's okay, that's okay. When you walk up to me and ask me, 
how I do something, I'll be glad to tell you. And I'm also going to tell you who taught me to do it. Because my first tribute is always going to be to the man that taught me. If you walk up to me and you ask me how you make money in this trade, I'll send you to somebody else because I don't have a clue. I just, I never worried about that. You know, Jack Reynolds, I, I bring him up so much till people get tired of hearing about him. But he was such a wonderful person. And what everybody knows about Jack Reynolds is when we were getting $50 to play the racehorse, he was getting 500 Now that impresses a lot of people. But you know what impressed me about Jack Reynolds? was I was standing in front of the shop with him one day in New Orleans. A pony comes by, a lead pony. He was hammering both sesamoids. I still remember the horse's name. I've never seen him since or before. His name was Bazooka. The kid riding the horse, he said, Jack looked at him and he said, son, he said, who shoes your horse? He said, I do, Mr. Reynolds. He said, I can't afford a horse shoe. He said, I get off at 4.30. He said, come back to the shop. He said, I'm going to shoe that horse and show you how to get him off his sesamoids. He said, Mr. Reynolds, I don't have any money. He says, son, I didn't ask you how much money you had. That's my favorite Jack Reynolds story. That is also what made Jack Reynolds a great horseshoer is because he did it for the love of the business. And he used to say, for the love of the game, I'm just who I am. I'm just horseshoe. That's it. And, and, and I'm always so unbelievably astonished, may be the right word for it, that people think I know anything. I, I really, I mean, because I've just had the greatest opportunity in the world to work on some of the greatest horses that ever lived. I've worked on some of the fastest horses that ever lived. And all the hell I ever did was stayed out of their way. <laughs> you know? were some of your, who were who some of your favorite horses? My favorite, well, my favorite horse probably, a horse that taught me a lot of lessons was worth about, on a good day, was worth 2,500. His name was Mr. Saber. That's been in 1976. And uh, he taught me a valuable lesson about running horses that I'll never forget. So I remember him, and I shot him all the way through his career. He, he was a racehorse, but he was worth about 2,500. If you put him in against $2,500 horses, he was a steak horse. If you put him in over his head, he'd run his eyeballs out. My favorite horse, everybody wants to know who the most famous horse. Well, first of all, I probably have to get my son over here because he can remember names, but I can't remember names. I'll tell you a really funny story about that if you want to hear it because it's it's hilarious. But I never remembered names too much. The most excited I ever got about a horse was Lost Coat. I got to do him toward the end of his years, and uh, he taught. He also taught me a lot. He was he was an amazing animal. He was the kind of animal that touched you way before you touched him. He had an aura about him that racehorses have. I've had that feeling from several horses in my life because I've been lucky. Lakeway was one of them, trained by Garrett Jones. She had that aura about her. Uh, Little E.T., when he went to Derby, he was something special. And I think back in Yalis Goody, a wonderful little racehorse. She was one of my favorites. 
a little mare that nobody has heard a lot about that turned out to be one hellacious broodmare was a mare called Sweet Nanette. She was one of my favorite horses. Dollar Bill, he was one of my favorites. He ran in the Derby, but he ran very interesting story. I could tell you about it, but you don't want to hear about that. But he came to me. He was a he was a son, and I didn't know this for almost a year of a horse called Peaks and Valleys. Peaks and Valleys was a quarter crack horse. He was just he was plagued with quarter cracks all his life. I always wanted to get a chance to work on him, but I didn't. I didn't have that opportunity. But a little bay coat come into the barn. It was pretty small, pretty, un, I guess, uh, no, he wasn't that fancy. I looked at him, I looked at his feet, and I walked down to the tack room. And I told the trainer I worked for, I said, uh, this horse needs to be moved to a different room. And he said, man, he's with the best groom in the barn. I said, I don't care about the best groom in the barn. I want the best footman in the barn. He said, well, okay, if you, th you say so. He said, why? I said, well, if you don't give me the best groom, I said, we're going to have foot problems with him. I didn't even know he was, was by peaks and valleys. He moved him, moved him into the groom that I wanted him to. The horse ran a two-year-old stake at Saratoga. All three legs of the triple crown come back in, in the Travers the following year. Never had a pimple on him. Never had a pimple on him. Never had any problems. Never missed a race. Never had a blemish on his feet. He was shipped to California. I'm not going to mention the names because it's a, it's kind of a sickening feeling. He was shot one time. He blew both corner, quarters in the morning workout. So, you know, it's a, there's, a, there's a lot of salesmen, a lot of promoters in this business. There's very few good horseshoes. And unfortunately, it's that way all over. It's not just, there's a lot of people that can sell. There's a lot of people that when they talk, I sit and listen. Find some of those people. Find the people that are, that are truly craftsmen and truly understand movement and truly understand structure. Don't look for a scientist. A scientist is gonna get you in trouble. They're really good in science. <laughs> but um, that's what I, you know, and there's story after story after story of that. I could tell you over the years, you know, about horses. Um, another horse I shot uh, was a horse called Once a Sailor. He uh, brings back a lot of memories. But Once a Sailor, I looked at the horse at quarter cracks. I drove from home to look at the horse. I looked at him, and uh, the rider, a Hall of Fame rider, told the trainer to get me to work on this horse. I worked on him. He wore he wore two bar shoes, handmade V bars. He was on the on the road to the Derby. He just annihilated him in New Orleans. He was a two-year-old. When he turned three, he went. He came to Kentucky. They had already signed a contract to get a guy to ride him in the Derby. I walked into the barn at Kingland. The trainer had decided to let the, his other horseshoe that he had for years work on him. They worked on him. I walked in the barn to look at him. The groom looked at me and he said, man, they have, uh, he said, they've screwed this horse up. He said he can't walk. I just turned and walked back out of the barn because it was no longer, I was the only horse I was working on. 
I ran into the rider about two hours later. He said, man, what happened to the horse? I said, what do you mean? He said, I worked that horse this morning. He said, he can't outrun nothing. He said, he's a whole different horse. I said, man, I'm not shooting him anymore. He said, you're kidding me. I said, no. He said, oh, I just took off of him. The horse disappeared. He went to Chicago all summer. Didn't outrun nobody. Run in Chicago all summer and got hot and dirty. Shifts back to the fairgrounds the following year. The horse is for sale for 50000 Trainer went over there and looked at him. He says, my owner told me to buy that horse if you think you can fix it. Trainer goes over there to look at him. When the trainer got there, he said, do you think you can, I, can, I can fix him? Do you think you can fix him? I said, I nodded my head. The guy saw me nod my head. He backed out on the sale. Went all the way through the fairgrounds meet. We're halfway through the meet. Horse goes for sale again. He's already run a couple more times. He still ain't beat a horse. Horse went for sale for 40000 Guy took a check in his pocket. And I said, this time, do not, do not look at me and ask me any questions. We'll talk about it when I get back in the car. We went over and looked at the horse. I got back in the car and I told him, I said, look, I said, I believe I can fix him, but I don't know. I said, he could have chips, he could have anything bothering him. I don't know what's wrong with him. He said, well, the guy told me to buy him if you think you can fix him. I said, man, I don't want you spending 40000 on a horse that may be broke down. He said, the guy told me to buy him. I said, okay. We wrote him a check for him. We led him right to the barn. We reshot him. Put two of those bars that they can't run in on. The next day, he couldn't walk. I said, well, I, I guess something else is wrong with him. The third day, I drive on the racetrack and he gives me a thumbs up. Two and a half weeks later, he went 175,000, added wire to wire and set a track record. That's a fact. You know, that's where all the bullshit comes by. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to thank Sonny for his inspiring conversation. I'd also like to thank Farnham for bringing this episode to us. We welcome your questions and comments. You can post these to our podcast page at AmericanFarriers.com slash podcast. Until next time, thank you for listening.